Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, June 12, 2018. The sun is shining, our spirits are high, we kind of almost feel like we can fly. Yeah, almost like we did when we were on the edge of 17. Ooh, baby, ooh, baby, ooh. Yeah, there's a little bit of a theme to today's episode. Here we go.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Stevie Nicks, the one and only Stevie Nicks, with Edge of Seventeen from her Belladonna album back in 1981. Oh, I just love that song. Reminds me of my well-spent youth. <laughs> well, kids, we have a fantastic guest artist for you today. Ah, oh, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting to get this person on the air, and I'm so excited. But first... We're going to continue and open up this segment with the song that our guest artist this week handpicked for this episode. Because you can't be on the edge of 17 if you're not just a little bit running with the devil.
we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Oh, I could almost feel the hair flying in my mouth with that song. That was Van Halen with Running With the Devil from their self-titled debut album, I believe, in 1978. Wow. So we had some witchy-poo stuff. We had running around, flying like a white-winged dove, running with the devil. And now, kids, it's time to sit back and relax because now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! Sitting across the table with a woman. I know every week I say that this person is my favorite, <laughs> and it's always true, but this lady is a special, super duper killer Dilla Miller favorite. <laughs> and why don't we just get to it? And I'm going to introduce to you right now the fabulous, the incandescent, the effervescent, and the persevering Cambry Cruz. Woohoo! That's me. Yeah, that was some introduction. Yeah, right? <laughs> the crowd goes wild. Yeah, the crowd did go wild. <laughs> so, um, Cambry, what up? Um, yeah, a lot. <laughs> God, I'm so happy that we are getting to to speak together because we've been trying to do this for like months now, yeah, and yeah. it hasn't worked. But a lot of life has happened to both of us right now. Yeah, in uh, in just less than a year, and we're just gosh. In the if you take a, a story arc of uh, the last four years. I fit a lot in <laughs> to well, four years. Yeah. Well, we will get to the past four years and past 40 years <laughs> in a minute. But what I ask everybody at, at the beginning of our talk is Cambry. And I was thinking about this before and I couldn't friggin' figure it out. How and where did we meet? It has to have been at either Otto's Shrunken Head or some other no-name Right. It has to it be. Had to be. It, it has e- to be. Eric Vedder had to yeah. be the, the conduit. Absolutely. Because I know your husband, Christian, yeah. For, yeah. from the 20th century yeah. at Surf Reality. We were both part of that whole art star right. thing together. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I met Eric Vedder, and he had me on one of his no-name shows that Christian came to, and I, I don't think Is you Is that were how you it. met? That's how... No, no, no. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, so that would be cool. Uh, that's how I met Eric, was oh, okay. through No Name. Uh, he invited me to do the show. And I don't know how he came across me or whatnot, but I remember asking Christian, hey, do you know this guy? Do you think this is legit? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I love Eric and I love the whole No Name crew. Oh, so you had been with Christian before you did the show. You yeah, already yeah. were with, with yeah, him. Yeah. You guys have been married for like, what, 10 years now, 12 years? We've been together 15 years, married uh, 12 years. This wow, August, congratulations. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. So no, I know you, I, I'm going to say I know you at least a decade. Yeah. At least oh, a decade. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe a bit more. And um, today, I'm noticing the twang in your voice. Oh, really? Yeah. For the yeah. first time? Well, no, not or for the first time, but just, just, just today. I'm, huh. I'm, re- I'm just really noticing it. Yeah, yeah. So this is going to lead to my next question. Cambry, <laughs> where are you from? I am from, well, 
uh, Texas in general. Okay, but that's where you were born, raised, and bred. I was born in Oklahoma, raised in South Texas, in a teeny tiny town called Montgomery, uh, which is north of Houston. I uh, went to high school in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but then I lived for ten years in Akron and uh, Ohio, and then now New York for uh, eighteen years. Wow. Well, so when did you move to New York? Uh, Two thousand. Oh, okay, so you've been here almost 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's cool. So um, was New York a place that you had always seen yeah. yourself living in when you were a child? I was afraid to move Or a teenager? Um, yeah, I, I thought about moving to Chicago because it felt a little like New York City light, more manageable, more Midwestern. But uh, I, I'm really glad that I went ahead and moved to New York. Now, we actually became friends because we both wrote books, memoirs, mm -hmm. about our growing up in our different places. Yeah. As you could tell from my accent, there's only one place I could have <laughs> grown up. So, you know, we we connected and we bonded over the differences and the and the um, comparisons between both of our upbringings. So why don't we, you tell us a little bit about yours? Oh, and, uh, and the name of your book is Burn Down Burn the Ground. Burn Down the Ground. The longer uh, synopsis of it is that uh, as a hearing child of deaf parents and also actually more extended deaf family, there are unique elements to a childhood where um, it, it's actually not too un unlike uh, kids whose parents speak um, Spanish language. or, right, yeah, right. or uh, were their first uh, generation immigrants. So where you're in charge of interpreting for your parents and helping navigate two different cultures and trying to explain what humor, why there are social and cultural differences and stuff. Um, so balancing that line, uh, and you know, and there's just, there's always hilarity anytime anybody is, uh, uh, talks about having deaf parents and their hearing. So there's that part of the story. And then when we lived in Texas, we also lived kind of roughshod, I don't know if that's the right word, but we camped when we first moved out there. We, and this is in the middle of nowhere in Texas. And this is like in the 70s? Uh, late 70s um, and early 80s. And we camped and then we got a trailer. The trailer got repossessed, so we moved into a tin shed. So y'all was po. We were, yeah, but my mom would take offense to that. I'm like, mom, our trailer was repossessed. Oh God. Yeah. So what sparked the creativity in you? Um, did you, you know, did you come from, a, did, did your family love the arts? Oh, so I'm so did glad this, you asked this. I don't get to talk about this very often, but the deaf culture, first of all, is very much a storytelling community where they get up and tell stories and, uh, and it's very almost theatrical. Signing. Signing is almost theatrical. Yeah, it is theatrical, not yeah. even almost. No, it's not almost, it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, but then the, the, the culture though is also very much a storytelling culture. They really revel in, in somebody taking the floor and telling a story and really just creating almost a theatrical piece of uh, a storytelling. Um, so the deaf community for sure, growing up in that community, lent itself to wanting to tell stories and being on, on stage, quote unquote. But then also, um, you know, my mom and dad are both very funny. My brother's funny. My mom has always been a, an avid reader, and books were always a very big part of my childhood, and reading was always a big part. But I, I don't know how much is nature versus nurture, because we lived, like I said, middle of nowhere. I, and I was left to my own devices for very long stretches of time. My parents worked in downtown Houston, which was at least an hour drive one way. 
and they didn't hire babysitters, of course not, you know. And then um, oh, there were no kids around really, if it, just a few, no girls. And um, to keep myself busy, I wrote and directed a puppet, a puppet play, what you, whatever. Shadow puppet? No, like a hand. Hand puppet. Hand puppet show. Okay. Uh, it was like the Peanuts. I, basically, I used Linus and Charlie Brown and those characters, and I made paper mache puppets, and I created a little theater, and I charged tickets, I made, had a concession stand, I made a program. Um, but I always said I was going to be an actress when I grew up. I always was told everyone that's what I was going to be. And I do like being on stage, but I've always loved the production side of stuff. But as a kid, I didn't know that was a job, you know? Mm. So when I look back now at that puppet show that I created, it's like, oh, I, I was a producer. I was an yeah. entrepreneur this whole time, and I had no idea. I just thought that I wanted to perform. And well, to perform, you have to make a show. And who's going to make a show out in the boondocks? Nobody. I guess I'll make it myself. And I, yeah, I always, I remember vividly being thrilled by the idea of making a concession stand and making sure that there were tickets and there was that, a ticketing system. So a concession stand that had no concessions? No, we I popped popcorn oh, you pop, and but, made but, but, uh, who, but, who ate, but who ate this? Who came? Uh, well, we had a, like about 10 kids, I oh, would say. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, I got Okay, I, th I thought maybe this was like your imaginary no, friends. No, no, I, got, I, I made money off that oh, shit. Snap. Oh, snap. <laughs> so you were a producer savant. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So did you have arts classes at school? You know, our school, even though we were in a very rural part of town, I will say that Montgomery School District was phenomenal and I had a really great uh, school experience. Even being poor and some of the other kids there are very, very rich. Um, I have to say that my childhood experience and my uh, uh, school experience was really wonderful. So as you got yeah. older, how did how did that go forward in high school? Did you well, once, do any theater when in high we school? Moved, yeah, when we moved from Montgomery up to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, that's where I went to a more, a, a much larger school. Um, I don't know if they have the classifications in New York the way they do in Texas, where it's like 1A, 2A, 3A schools. Basically, yeah, it's for the purposes of competition to make sure everything's fair. If your school is a 1A, it means your population is, uh, is a certain level. So 5A school is very heavily populated school. So, so it, it kind of keeps the playing field more even. Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. And so we went from this 1A school to 5A school, you know, 90 people in my graduating class, maybe even less, um, up to, um, we had 666. But, uh, 666? Yeah, yeah. um, but anyway, uh, that, uh, that school, though, had a really great theater program. And it was also a very great school. I had, a, I, I think the school systems that I had, I just either lucked out or I don't know. I, I really enjoyed school. School definitely was a place to help me not die. <laughs> uh, just my my brother was is mentally ill, and that's when his mental illness really started to rear. Oh dear, yeah. that's the, uh, in the late teens, uh, early twenties is when yeah. a lot of, of illnesses, um, textbook illnesses, start to manifest. Yeah, textbook. Yeah. Yeah. And he um, 
was very paranoid and he was doing drugs as well so and i'm sure that drug use was as a way of self-medicating everybody was doing drugs well yeah same i was yeah yeah, i was (laughs) yeah and so um he was off doing that my mom and dad had gotten separated and my dad was living down the street from us but my dad does not take rejection well he has He's a classic domestic abuser, you know, if I can't have her, no one can. And Ugh. yeah, so he started stalking us and then eventually he came over and tried to kill her. And it was the summer before my senior year in high school. Oh my God. Yeah, and I happened to be home and I witnessed it and I, I helped break it up and I called 911. Thank God you were yeah, there. Yeah. And the, uh, years later, when he tried to kill this other woman, it was basically the exact same scenario but she was by herself you know but she lived yeah she did because the cops came and busted down the oh, door oh wow yeah. so uh, that, wow yeah lucky him that he's not a murderer only an attempt yeah only, only an attempt only an attempt two time attempted though so. so how did that affect you with you and you wanting to go on into college and getting that, a, a higher education that uh, just derailed the whole thing because okay. at that point it's like how do i live mm. and put a roof over our heads we won't go into hiding so we're in hiding trying to get to school and all that I, I did graduate so I finished my in my high school career but I didn't even bother fill I know I don't think I ever finished one college application and this is where I do feel like I got the shaft and I, I carried a great deal of bitterness anger um, resentment. Yeah. Resentment. Thank you. Yeah, perfect. Because how did somebody not take me by the hand? So you're where are you going to college? You're summa cum laude. There were only uh, there were. I oh, was, the, where were the counselors? Exactly. And the thing is, is there were over six hundred students mm. in the school, two counselors, one yeah. or two counselors. That they can't catch everyone. But then also, when you look at my grades on paper. Why would they think that I'd need help? Right, because if you were summer cum laude, they figured that you had it all together. Yeah. Nobody would know what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, uh, yeah. There, so there's a, I'm sure so some of that. So you just fell between I the cracks. I just fell through, yeah. Ugh. And so, and this is where, you know, my mom failed me by not helping and insisting. But she'd never gone to college. None of my family had ever gone to college. Uh, on, on my dad's side, people, he, his family had yeah. gone to college. But none of his aunts and, or my aunts or anybody, nobody ever asked if I needed help. Wow. Yeah. Were you able to get to, to get to college at all? No, I ended up going to night school uh, at, um, to get a paralegal degree. I got an associate degree as a paralegal. Yeah. And were you still living with your mom at the time? Were you, um, were you still living in Texas? I know I got married in high school. Oh, you got okay. married? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, so yeah, let's back up. And I said, this is where my mom failed me by not helping me get my application, but also by uh, giving me permission. She had to give me legal permission on the legal documents to sign permission for me to get married because I was underage. Um, the man I married, awesome dude, his name's Rob. Rob, if you're listening, you're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he lives in Akron, and um, he was in the Navy in Dallas-Fort Worth. They had a naval air station, and he built F-14 Tomcats, and officer and a gentleman kind of classic you know, helped. Wow. Love, love lifted so, me up so where I, I belonged. So as soon as you graduated college, you moved with him to Ohio? Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, I think we, we waited another year. He was still serving out his four-year whatever service enlistment. Um, the Desert Storm War had started. So he got out of the Navy. He did not have to go to Desert Storm. They didn't make him stay, thankfully. Uh, so he was able to get out, and we moved up to uh, Akron, where he's from. And we found an apartment, and I got a job at a bank. And this is why I went to night school, because the bank paid for classes, you know, they, uh, that, were per that pertained to your job. You mm -hmm. could get some of your money back, that kind of thing. Um, so the bank was great in the sense that I, I started a 401k, I went to night school. When I got my paralegal degree, I started working in the legal department. The bank was a great place to be for a while, but then after I finally settled in, it was like, well, I wanna be in theater. I wanna act and, and do that stuff. So I started getting involved with the community theater in Akron. And that, again, was just an amazing experience. And so I just, that's where I was like, okay, you, you have like one this? life, let's go to New York. So I'm so gonna gather thing. that marriage didn't last too long. No, we, we were married for like five, five and a half years. Oh, wow, so, that's, yeah, that, that, significant. That, that's significant. He's a good dude, and um, my uh, niece, his, his niece, my ex-niece-in-law, mm -hmm. she would be mad if, I, if she hears yeah. me say that, <laughs> my niece, um, Alicia, is one of my favorite people on the planet. But and, that's so awesome yeah. that you stayed yeah. friends. His family was my family. I had no family, you know? When my family had just blown up. Who do I have? No yeah. one. So um, when you moved to New York, is that when you decided to move to New York? Or did, did it took a while. For me, I always called the job at the bank my golden handcuffs. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I had a great job. And I was making a lot of money. I became an assistant vice president when I was 25. Wow. 26. Yeah. Oh, my God. credit quality department. So you, you could have went CEO in oh, a whole totally, different direction. Totally. Absolutely. Um, if I, maybe I, they might have required me to get more school but for sure. So, so what happened next? How did you get out of that and or segue? Um, I, so I was doing really well money-wise, which was a bad thing. Like it was really hard for me to turn away, walk away from that, especially being alone. Um, Cause I was divorced by then. And so not having a family to fall back on. Um, the fear of being, living in a tin shed again will never lead. The key for me was uh, I've got to find a way out that is so drastic and different, but also secure. Mm -hmm. And moving to New York without a job and everything is not secure. So I was like, you know, I want to, I just want an adventure. And so I joined the Peace Corps. Yeah. Oh my God! But I didn't actually go anywhere because while I was in the midst of getting like my AIDS test and you know you have to get a physical and they were gonna place me in Fiji, and uh, wow, yeah, that's pretty exotic. I, very right. But then there was a coup in Fiji. Oh wow! <laughs> For like what, 10 when was years. this? Ninety what? It was in nineteen ninety. Uh, nine, wow. eight or nine? Yeah, and so that I was like, I've, I, that, that's a signal. I've just got to, I'm on the wrong path, and, and I moved to New York. And I was dating a guy, and he lived in Astoria, so I landed in Astoria, and I got a job at a law firm in Rockefeller Center. And I don't want to be too hippy-dippy here, but I love the idea that we manifest things and thoughts become things. 
and I do believe that you can manifest certain things if you think about them, mm -hmm. write them you down. Make, you make room for them. Purposeful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you make them as goals. And I remember as a tourist in 1998 or 99, coming to New York with my Akron theater friends and seeing five plays in four days, you know, just living it up. And I went on an adventure by myself. Up, I walked all the way from Times Square up to the Met. Along the way, I stopped in Rockefeller Center in the Channel Gardens, and I was waiting for Saks Fifth Avenue to open. They, they opened at like nine, so it must have been just a few minutes. And I remember sitting in the Channel Gardens, so 30 Rock would have been to my left, Saks Fifth Avenue to my right. I was writing in a journal and writing a postcard, and I was like, oh my God, I would love to work right here. This is just the most beautiful spot in New York City. And the Prometheus and the ice skating rink and all that. I was like, God, if I ever moved to New York, this is where I would want to work. And then you ended up there two it, and a half years later. Exact building, 625th Avenue, wow. the one that I was looking at. The force at. is strong with you, Jedi. No shit, right? <laughs> and for a long time, the force was very strong. If I thought it, it came true from wild stuff, like just stuff that should not have been reasonable for me to imagine happening to me, writing a book and all that stuff. So let, let's yeah. let's start getting to some of that. So where were you working again? And now I forget. A uh, law no, firm. A law firm. Right, yeah, right. we worked on Sorry. intellectual property and trademark. Uh, we worked with the New York Police Department and the FDNY, um, trademarking their logos which we are, uh, it was precedent setting in that uh, municipalities don't typically have um, the rights to own those trademarks because they're owned by the, the people. You right. Know? They're funded and owned by the people, but they were trademarked and then a couple of months later, 9-11 happened. And oh, so we were able yeah. to execute those tra trademarks, and we were able to prosecute people who were who were selling well, counterfeit. And it's like after 9/11 too, so it's no, doubly can't. gross. Yeah, it's doubly gross. Uh, and then they moved to to a different partnership, they uh, to a different law firm. But I hated that law firm. I just felt like I was in a law firm. I didn't mm. feel like I was. Yeah, which I didn't like it. And so I was like, so the you know, culture was different. Is, yeah, I think it's time for me to move on because by then I was already doing my PR and promotion work. I was. I had always been doing that. Oh, at okay. Night. I had always from so that, the that moment was, I moved to New York. That was your side hustle. It was my big side hu hustle. Who did you do it for, and how did you get into it in the first place? Um, I was when I first moved to New York. I was already doing marketing for Jose Cuervo. How and, did you get to do that? Um, in Ohio when I moved from Akron from the banking jobs and stuff and the town I moved to Columbus was not did not have a good theater thriving theater scene um, and so I found some marketing gigs where basically uh, go to baseball games and shoot hot dogs out and out of cannons that kind of stuff brand ambassador kind of that hokey language so when I moved to New York I was like oh, I'll just do that but for Broadway and off-Broadway and so I started marketing for shows, and then I met Christian and started dating him, my now husband. Where did you guys meet? At the Gershwin Hotel. Oh, really? Yeah. He had a show there called Portable Comedy. I remember that yeah, show. Yeah, it was fun. It was a good yeah. show. Oh my god. I went to go see 
Todd Levin performed stand-up for I the know very first too. time. It was his very first time performing for, stand-up. For real? Yes, for oh real. my God. And he was a blogger, and that's how we knew him, as a blogger, because blogging was new. So me and some blogging girlfriends met in person. We went to go see Todd perform. Christian was running the show. And uh, so we got to know each other. And a few weeks later, we started dating. Um, and then... Uh, just dating Christian and being around those type of right people. because because he was he was also emerging onto the stand-up yeah. and acting scene at that time yeah and yeah. being around those type of people I realized oh not only is it infinitely easier and cheaper to produce stand-up comedy shows I mean, here I had been producing some off-Broadway stuff that was you know labor-intensive and you've got a lot of different personalities at play behind the scenes and then there's also union stuff you've got to deal with in theaters and blah 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 I was like okay not only is stand-up comedy infinitely easier uh, I but also comedians are terrible at promoting themselves so it became really clear to me that there was this niche that I could fill to promote stand-up comedians and produce comedy. Huh. Yeah. That just seems like the next logical step. Next logical well, I'm dating step. a comedian. I might as well start working with them. And yeah. then I can be around my boyfriend more. <laughs> and it's great. Yeah, it's 2003 wow. is when I started wow. doing that. Wow, yeah. that's awesome. Oh, that's 15 years. That's 15 <gasps> years. That's this year, 15 years Oh, my years God, happy, happy anniversary. Thanks. Happy anniversary. <laughs> so what led you to, um, to comics? The, uh, I had just left the law firm, and not too long after, uh, they, I found out they were looking for somebody for PR marketing. And um, I didn't get the job right away. I had uh, Christian and I were planning our wedding, and we, our wedding and honeymoon was going to be right when their grand opening was, mm. which obviously, big conflict. And then also, uh, they, they had hired an outside PR firm to oversee the big launch, which most new businesses do that for the, like the first three months, six months, yeah, they have a short-term contract. Um, so when I got back from the honeymoon stuff, they were like, hey, we're actually still looking for an in-house publicist. Are you still up for it? And I was like, please, yes. So that was uh, fall of 2006. Um, and then Ochi's Lounge came about a year later. Yep. Because I was like, you know, this basement space, we gotta do something with this basement space. If nobody's gonna do anything, do you guys mind if I do something with it? Look at that. I'll be in charge of it. Don't You don't have to lift a finger. So I helped build the stage, I painted it bought the curtains, hung the curtains. Yeah, you made it yours. Uh, you, you, you took nothing and you made a thing out of it, and it was a great thing. It, it was it, a it, it, really it, it, great It was a thing. happening thing. It was a really great thing. Yeah. One of the things that I loved about um, Ochi's was that it filled a void, a void that was created when many of the performance spaces on the Lower East Side closed down in the early aughts. Yeah. And the, like the, the, place, the place of reality where Christian and I met. And um, yeah. so when, when comics came around, you know, that was like the mainstream comedy club place but you provided the alt space right. for the up and coming people. What's filling that space now? Well I think it's more dispersed now. Yes. It's over yes. across different boroughs yes. now. Yeah. They're, Whereas they're, before they're, it always was Manhattan. Mm -hmm. There's no way that, that that was thriving in Astoria or in Queens at all no. or in Brooklyn and now it, there are at least a couple in each borough yeah, and I do think that that's maybe it's thinned it out a little. Yeah. 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 Not so highly no. focused in one on one like area the Lower East Side. Yeah. Because Manhattan is really, uh, it's kind of the 
you know, cheesecake factory of the boroughs. Really. Yes. But um, it's impossible for anybody other than the big box stores to get rent, it feels yes. like. So, yeah, I know. Yeah, I still have the Ochi's sign. The, oh, yeah. that's so cool! I, yeah. I have I have a picture out that I always will cherish. Me with the <laughs> with the backdrop behind me, Ochi's yeah. Lounge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know, it was such a great place, and then it came crashing to an end. Yeah, um, comics closed, which took Ochi's with it. I did close up Ochi's prior to comics yes. closing. Yes, that must have been so devastating. But was it also around the time when you started writing your book? Yes, it was. Actually, the timing was great. Now, now, yeah. now what prompted you to write a book? How did you decide that you were going, you were going to, to take that path? So in Ochi's Lounge, I had a couple of storytelling shows. One was with um, uh, Sarah Benincasa, the, fam yes. the Family Hour. And it really gave me a platform and also a deadlines and yes. intentions and uh, expectations, people expecting me to be there to tell a story and stuff. So that was helpful. And it also gave me much needed stage time to get more comfortable being on stage again. But also being on stage as yourself versus acting on stage in a play, entirely totally different. different animal. Much oh, more yes. nerve-wracking. Yes. Oh, yes, my yes, God. Yes. And it's, it's harder. Until, it's so, un un until, so much harder. Until you find who you are. Yeah. And when you find your voice, then nothing is easier. Because yeah. all you have to do is it's be just yourself. Be yourself. It's, Isn't that wonderful? It, it's crazy. It's wonderful. So what made you decide that writing a book was the way to go? I'm going to put my entire life story now in this book that's going to last forever. Yeah. Uh, telling the stories on stage, I, yeah, uh, I had already set out the intention to write a book, and that came out. Uh, that came about because I'd written an essay called the. It was like the story of my life, essentially, in, in three thousand words or less. Mm -hmm. And I had written it for a contest, and I missed the deadline for the contest, so it ended up getting published on a website called Fresh Yarn. Fresh Yarn doesn't take new stories anymore, I don't think, but they do still have the website. I think you can still read the story, but. Um, the Fresh Yarn essay got me an agent. Agent got me a book deal. Mm. But um, the the I I I feel like writing the book was very validating. So, and I know that you know what this feeling is. Um, it, it gives you so much more legitimacy, and. It was that was really important for, especially with my dad's side of the family, as I've talked about them a couple times now. That, yeah, this did happen, and you can't. You can't deny take it away it. from me. You can't take it away from me. Yep, it's a fantastic <laughs> book. I remember being at your book party. I remember being in s several readings with you. I remember seeing you and your mother on stage uh, together. Yeah, she's delightful. Yeah. Signing yeah. songs yeah. and singing songs in and sign language. In sign just language, great. Yeah. just just amazing. Yeah, um, it it was great. Uh, uh, I am very proud of the book. I'm. So happy that I did it. It took a lot out of me, and I feel like the the couple years after I wrote it, I didn't have Ochi's anymore, didn't have comics anymore, and the book is in the rear view. So what is next? What do I do now with the well, rest of my you, life? You go to Astoria, and you, you move to Astoria, and you open up a, a club there. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I did. Yeah, I was like, I didn't. I wanted Ochi when I when I was looking back, and I was like, well, what would make me happy right now? I don't want to write another book. I don't feel like I'm a writer. I just wanted to write that story. Right. You wanted, that, you that wanted to important. tell that story, yeah. and it was important for you to get that exactly. out. Exactly. Um, 
but uh, when I thought back, like, well, what would make me happy? When was I at my happiest? And it was when I had Ochi's Lounge. I want Ochi's Lounge. So that's when I, would, I kind of, again, manifesting. So this Check is this so out. this is 2013 when you're thinking about this. Early 2014. So talk about manifesting. Check this out. Christian and I have a, a cabin upstate. There was a church for sale up there that was gorgeous and had a four-bedroom parsonage house next to it. The whole thing, the four-bedroom house, completely livable. You could move in right now and not have to do anything. It wouldn't be like fancy or, or anything, but you could absolutely rent it out right now or live in it yourself. And the church and everything, they were asking like $85,000. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It was freakishly low. Wow. And the realtor was it haunted? Was, no. <laughs> and the realtor was like, honestly, offer them anything, they'll take it. Yeah. It was crazy. Wow. And so we were really I I was like, well, let's think about this and how can I do this? I, w I could have a theater in the church and then we could have the parsonage while we're getting the church up to snuff to have a, a, to make into a theater and a kitchen and all that. I could either rent out the parsonage to help offset costs or make that a bed and breakfast. Or let's say Lisa Lampanelli is going to headline the church and then I put her up in the, in the house. I just started getting really excited about it. But at the end of the day, it's in Sullivan County, which is a very, it's a sleepy part of the Catskills. And I don't know that the Catskills is ready to make their rebound um, in that regard yet. And I was like, God bless, if I could just, if we could just find a little space, just nothing too big, just a little space like on this block, you know, far enough from our apartment, but not too far, like on this block, like this little space right here. So we were walking along, and I was like, like that little place, that, like, that's a good size. And, and then the next day, there was a for rent sign on that space. And I was like, holy crap. If that's not a sign, I don't know what is. So I called. It turned out that space wasn't right and everything, but it was just enough of a universe saying, of the universe saying, you're, you're on the right path, that I started legitimately looking and found the space on 23rd where QED is. That's amazing. Yeah. And QED opened up at the end of 2014. I did one of the first shows mm -hmm. at, at QED, full disclosure, mm -hmm. and it's just blossomed. It's, it's, it's the space to be, yeah. the space and the place to be. How many um, classes do you offer? How we many shows do you do every? Over 100 events a month. And the first year and a half, two years, were the hardest years of my life. That's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It was, I, I'm honestly not, I'm surprised that I survived it. It was exhausting. The amount of work, 120 hours a week, maybe more, and people are like, oh, there's not that, no, no, it's no way. Yes, there's a way, and it's not uh, fun. <laughs> it's awful. It was no sleep, and, and my sleep was peppered with fear like nightmares and, and worry and anxiety, and so I'd wake up with making lists and go to bed with the lists going through my head and it was a tremendous undertaking. Uh, Christian of course was very helpful and um, 
but yeah, I oversaw everything from the licensing to the construction, and I put in the ceiling myself. I painted the walls. And I remember you sending out emails saying, here's a list of foods we could offer. Please check off yeah. what you think you might like to see yeah, yeah. us all eat. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was really exciting, but exhausting. It, it nearly killed you. It nearly killed me. Yeah, so as opposed to the other thing that could have killed could you. Have. Well, uh, yeah, so it just started feeling like I was getting normal hours. It, I was just starting to get days off, starting to get time away where I wasn't there every single night or every day. And that's when I got diagnosed with breast cancer. <laughs> so it was like, oh, Boy. yeah. And that thankfully, knock on wood, in the rear view, it was cancer light in that I found it very early. I found it myself. I found it early enough, but I do have this other thing that makes me at higher risk. So it's something I'm gonna have to monitor and live with for the rest of my life. So um, you went through treatment and now through. you're clean and there's a watchful piece? I'm gonna, my next book will be how to get and beat cancer in eight months or less. Did, now, did you visualize beating the cancer as well? Uh, Were no, you intentional have, for that? I have not, that's where I feel like I got out of practice with manifesting things. QED well, you, you, was so overwhelming. And if anyone ever says you manifested cancer, you sick me <laughs> I, I feel like I, I was so busy and just day-to-day -day tasks at QED were so overwhelming that I wasn't able to be intentional mm. or manifest anything. And so this last, having gotten, the best thing about breast cancer was it made me take time off away from work and call on people to help. And so I was able to take from my surgery date to the end of the year, I was away a lot. And uh, I kind of regained some of myself as a result. And then I went through radiation and everything and I finished up treatment in the beginning of this year. And with each day away from treatment, the more I started to feel like myself. And I feel really strong and good and, yeah. You look fantastic. Thank you. You know, listening to you, I totally forget what a, an amazing storyteller you are. <laughs> I mean, in, in light of all the other things that you've done with your life, well, hopefully we'll be hearing something from you really soon because people say a little birdie tells them, but this is the Fish Out of Agua show, so it's a little Pascal, Pascal says yeah. that you have something to read for us. I do. And this is from Burn Down the Ground? Yes, it is. Fantastic. All right. Cambry Cruz with an awesome excerpt from her awesome memoir, Burn Down the Ground. Mom said I came out of the womb with the microphone in my hand. You weren't even two years old, but you were already talking, using sign language, told everyone you were going to be a big movie star when you grew up. But aside from the puppet shows I wrote, directed, and quote-unquote performed for the King Boys, our neighbors, only one acting opportunity had presented itself during our time in the backwoods of Boar's Head. I was only eight years old, and Mom informed me that we were headed to an audition. I had no idea what play I was reading for or what getting the part might entail, but I was ready for the exciting challenge as Mom drove us in the Chevy to a community theater in Conroe. I had already had the lead in my second grade school pageant in uh, Houston and performed in and directed a fellow third grade girls in a brilliant rendition of Silent Night in Montgomery. Mom had never been cast in anything in her whole life, but I still listened to her advice. Remember to speak loud and clear. Well, that would be a cinch. I had to do that around deaf people all the time. And as a coda, I could express myself in ways other kids couldn't. 
A hearing person expresses feelings by changing tone and intensity of his voice, just as slight variations in pitch and volume of one's voice convey information in spoken language, fluent speakers of ASL can pick up small differences in a sign's duration, range of motion, and the signer's body language. It was normal for me to use body language and facial expressions to convey meaning and feelings in my signing with my two deaf parents and other deaf friends and family. The problem was that I hadn't learned how to drop those communication traits when socializing and going to school with people who could hear. So my animated speaking had become my unique accent. Once inside the theater, I took my place at the center of a wide circle of auditioning actors. When it was my turn to read the script, I read, or I should say shouted, the lines with exaggerated facial expressions and wild arm gestures. I have made up my mind now to lead a different life from other girls and later on, different from ordinary housewives. My start has been so full of interest and that is the sole reason why I have to laugh at the humorous side of the most dangerous moments. With frantic motions, the director waved for me to stop. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, well, Cambry, <clears throat> she cleared her throat and bit her upper lip to suppress bubbling laughter. You enunciate very well, and <laughs> you certainly can project. Glancing around the room, I noticed the other actors were exchanging astonished glances, covering their mouths and snickering. I wasn't sure what was so funny. I spoke loudly and clearly, just like Mama had instructed, and the director had agreed. I'd nailed it right? If I'd been reading for Annie, I may have booked the gig. Unfortunately, I had been auditioning for the role of Anne Frank. <laughs> what on earth had my mother been thinking? I could have acted better than Jodie Foster, but it wouldn't have mattered. My Aryan looks, golden hair, and Texas twang were more like the Hitler youth instead of a Jewish girl trying to survive the Holocaust. My mother was undaunted by the rejection and gave me a pep talk during the ride home. It's just one audition, Cambry. Some actors have to go on hundreds before they ever get a part. Let this be a lesson. You can't hit if you don't swing. Oh, my God. <laughs> Did you see me trying not to laugh? So, um... Uh, where can someone uh, buy Burn Down the Ground? Well, it's out of print for the hardcover, but it's still the ebook is still available. Fantastic! And yeah, can one on, purchase it at QED? Oh uh, yeah, we only have a few copies left. Oh, so I run know. on down! Yeah, run on down to QED. Well, yeah. you can also get Fish Out of Agua, by yes, the way. Yes, you can. Yes. Absolutely, we have a couple of copies here. Woohoo! Run on down. So, what is next for QED, and more importantly, what is next for you? Uh, for me, hopefully, is me staging uh, the Burn Down the Ground solo show adaptation. I had staged it once for Solocom a couple years ago, right when the book had come out. And I had gotten really sick during the run. And so when the run was over, I was just happy to have it in the rear view. And I kind of let it wither, which I'm kicking myself that I did that. I should have. Uh, my intent was to develop it and take it on the road, enter it into festivals. And I'd like to do that. Yeah, that, so, and then for QED, it's the same old, same old, hopefully, knock on wood for another. And just keep continuing, <laughs> yeah, exactly. keep continuing, yeah, yeah. keep chug, continuing. Chug, chug, yeah. And like hit, hit the lottery so you can buy the building. Yeah, <laughs> and right. Then you, oh, and that'd then be you, amazing. Yeah, Holy shit. You, you, you want to talk about Manif? Yes. So um, how can people find QED and you? I am at Cambry, K-A-M. 
B-R-I, on Twitter and Facebook and everything. I'm the only Cambry crews out there. There are a bunch of Cambries now, but um, I'm the oldest. You're the original. I am. Cambry <laughs> v not one one point v, <laughs> one, v version one. Cambry yeah, version yeah. one. Um, and then for QED, we're QED Astoria on all social media and QEDAstoria.com. So, yeah. Um, so when um, we get to the end of our time together, there's one question that I ask everybody. How would you encourage or inspire a young person who desperately wants to manifest something more to their life that people seem to think they have the right to want to manifest, but this child seems to have everything stacked against them? Yeah. What would you tell this child? When, when the odds are stacked against you, it's hard to see that you have any possibilities. But I would say it, you, there are, there's power in your choices. There's so many things that are out of your control when you're a kid, who your parents are, where you live, how much money you guys have or whatever, but you have all the control on who your friends are, what books you read, how you spend your free time. I know it sounds like a, uh, an old mom kind of like, you know, make sure to do your homework, but it, in all sincerity, that that's where you can control your destiny. And then uh, from a practical standpoint, and this is for adults and kids, uh, making lists and writing down goals is tremendous. There's tremendous power in that. Well, oh, thank, thank you for speaking your yeah. truth. Thank you for being on Fish Out of Agua. And um, I guess it's time for one of my favorite parts of the show. Hug on the air! Yeah. Woo! We always end with a hug on the air. There was a time when men were kind, when their voices were soft, and their words inviting. There was a time when love was blind, and the world was a song, and the song was exciting. There was a time it all went
with Peshadabagwa on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Patti LuPone from the original cast recording of Les Mis from 1985. And oh my God, this show has totally gotten away from us. That's our show, kids. Um, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, a monthly pledge to support living artists, please just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash donate. You could donate as little as a dollar and every cent helps us continue to stay on the air. And we're going to close with a couple of seconds of the last song Camry picked for this episode. It's by Fleetwood Mac. It's also called Dreams. It's from their Rumors album in 1978. Stay tuned, please, for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week. Woohoo!